good morning, church. My name is Camille Maddock. I'm the associate pastor here at the church, and it is uh, so wonderful to be here with you all this morning. We are about halfway through our series on wrestling with doubt and finding faith. It's Andy and my hope that this series helps you to see and to understand doubt not as the enemy of faith, but as a source to deepen and strengthen faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's a component of faith. People of faith, even those with strong and deep faith, have moments of doubt. Doubt is natural. It's healthy. It can spur us to further reflection and a search for what is true. Pastor Rob Bell describes doubt this way, as a sign that your faith has a pulse, that it's alive and well and exploring and searching. Faith and doubt aren't opposites. They are, it turns out, excellent dance partners. What a wonderful way to understand doubt, to understand that it's healthy and beneficial. You know, doubt was a part of the faith and the life of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. In fact, he almost left ministry over his doubts. Wesley believed that part of our life of faith included thinking critically about our faith and that God is not offended by our questions. Asking questions, wrestling with faith is biblical. In fact, some of our greatest faith heroes, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, began their stories with doubts and questions and concerns. Jesus himself would respond to the questions that he received with more questions. So if there's a place where we should feel free and comfortable to express our doubts and our questions and our concerns regarding faith, it should be here in the church. And so that's what we're doing in this series, examining some of the most common doubts in the Christian faith. These doubts all come from Pastor Adam Hamilton's work and his book, Doubt. Andy talked on our very first week about uh, our doubts about, is there a God? Can God be loving? Can God love someone like me? On the second week, we talked about the Bible and how we view the Bible, its truth, how we can use it and engage with it in our daily lives. And then last week, he had the easy question of, are all non-believers going to hell? And that leads us to this week and the question of, is heaven real? A continuation of the wrestling with what, uh, what we do with what, we, what may or may not happen after our life is over or the life of our loved ones are finished. So before we dig into this question, will you take just a moment uh, and pause with me for prayer? Gracious and loving God, we know you are with us in this moment and will be with us in the moments to come. Help us to use our doubts and our questions as a way to engage with your spirit and with your presence. Open our ears and our hearts to hear the message you would have for us this morning. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. In Adam Hamilton's book begins the, this chapter with a quote from a journalist named Lisa Miller. She wrote a book on human beings' fascination with heaven. The quote reads like this, 
The idea of heaven defies logic, but in my mind, it represents hope, and I believe in hope. Oh, I love this quote so much. The idea that heaven defies logic, but it gives hope. You know, for some, the most logical conclusion to life is that it simply comes to an end, that this life is all there is, and it should be cherished. A cosmology that suggests that heaven is somewhere up there fails to hold up in the modern era where human beings have been to space and the moon, where we've seen images from billions of light years away. For others, logic conflicts with heaven being a place that is so good and so loving because all that they see in this world is evil and callousness. There are some who don't settle for what they deem artistic interpretations of heaven. And yet, despite the struggle of the logic, as Lisa Miller points out, heaven can represent hope. And that's something that we can hold on to. So church, I ask you, what do you think of when you think of heaven? Is it a physical place just beyond the reach of human perception? Are there fluffy clouds and halos and white robes? Are there streets of gold and pearly gates? Is it laid out like a master-planned city with neighborhoods and homes and mansions? Is it a place populated with people that you know and love? Will it look the same to me, to you, to people on the other side of this world? You know, Adam Hamilton uh, begins this chapter by talking about a Pew Research Center study in 2021, and it found that 73% of Americans believe in heaven. This includes 26% of agnostics and 3% of atheists. And incidentally, only 92% of all Christians believe in heaven. Now, these numbers were intriguing to me, so much so that I actually went and found the study and read through it in its entirety. And some of the other facts I found interesting were these. Almost 70% of the people who believe in heaven think of it as a place where there is no suffering. 65% of the people who believe in heaven think that they will be reunited with loved ones who had passed on before them. Both of those numbers are a higher percentage than the number of people who believe that in heaven they will get to meet God, which is only 62%. And in fact, there's a total of 31% of all Christians who believe in heaven that believe only other Christians or those in their uh, very particular religious group will get into heaven. Now, I think this is pretty accurate. It matches how we often talk or think about heaven in our churches or in pop culture. Often we think about heaven as a paradise, the best of everything that we can imagine, beauty beyond what we have experienced here on earth. We think of the most beautiful, the most tranquil oasis, and it is so much more than that. You know, Robin Williams starred in a wonderful movie, What Dreams May Come, and his character, after dying in a car accident, eventually awakens in a heaven that he has created with his imagination. His surroundings are a mountainous landscape that resembles a painting that was created by his wife. It is a strikingly beautiful in its cinematography, in its imagery. 
But the idea of heaven as a paradise is not just about the beauty and location of the environment. Often we imagine heaven as a paradise for our physical nature too. I once had a conversation with an older woman who shared her excitement to get to go to heaven, to physically return to when she was in her prime, when she was younger, healthier, thinner, prettier. It reminded me of the ending of the movie Titanic, when Rose is like 101 and she finally passes away peacefully in her sleep and she is returned to the beautiful uh, pre-sinking Titanic and she's returned to her old young adult self. This matches one of the things they found in that Pew study, that 60% of all people who believe in heaven expect to have perfect bodies when they get there. You know, the ending of Titanic is an example of the other way that we talk about heaven, as a haven, a safe refuge where we are reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us, a place where we're reconciled with our beloveds. It's a homecoming, a family reunion, a celebration. It's also a place of rest, well-earned from the life that we have lived, where we fe- all those things that we found difficult and painful on earth are no more. There's no more suffering There's no more difficulty. Heaven will be a haven from the turmoil and the struggle and the division that we experience in this life. But the Pew study also makes it clear that while not a majority, there's a large group that thinks that heaven is a clique. Yes, we are surrounded by our loved ones, but not by anyone else that we would not expect to be there. This heaven, we imagine, will be filled with people who think like us, who act like us, who look like us. And if heaven does have pearly gates, the purpose of those gates are to keep out the wrong people. You know, it's likely this understanding, especially from the point of view of Christian exclusivism, that leads many people to not believe in heaven. That if heaven is full of self-righteous, judgmental, holier-than-thou individuals, why would any of us even want to go there? You know, one of my favorite understandings of heaven is actually the opposite of that. That heaven is so filled with a diverse group of people that those who would shut the gate and make it into an exclusive invite-only club are surprised by who all is there. In fact, I have a favorite heaven cartoon. It's done by David Hayward. Uh, He's a pastor-turned-artist. He publishes religious comics under the name Naked Pastor. Now, this is not because he belongs in the uh, classic art depictions of hell that Andy talked about last week. It's naked as in the naked truth, as in being vulnerable. He creates his cartoons to provoke, to start difficult conversations, to help others approach God and faith with truth and authenticity and understanding. And this is one of his comics on heaven. It's titled, The First Few Minutes in Heaven. It's filled with all these speech and thought bubbles expressing surprise. They're really quite funny. Feel free to read them as you listen. And incidentally, my favorite one is the one on the bottom left. You made it? You? I also like the one on the bottom right that says, Where the hell am I? I love this comic because it is a core part of my understanding of what I think heaven will be like, filled with the unlikely. 
So let's take just a moment to explore several of the different biblical descriptions of life after death. In fact, I think it's important to remember that the understanding of afterlife, of, of hell, as Andy talked about it last week, as heaven we talk about this week, evolved throughout the Hebrew and the New Testament. The Israelites didn't really have an understanding of heaven as a place in the afterlife. They were focused on the here and now, on their behavior in the moment. In fact, heaven is God's dwelling place, and it's off-limits to most people. It's only a handful of very special individuals who make it up to heaven. But there's one passage in the Hebrew Testament that I want to lift up. It comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgraces from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, the prophet Isaiah is describing a feast on the mountain of the Lord after death has been defeated. Rich food, the very best wine. It's a celebration, a party, a banquet. In fact, it's this passage that is alluded to multiple times in the New Testament as a reference to heaven. Isaiah uses a banquet as a metaphor for the age to come. You see, the first century Judaism wedding banquets lasted for days following a wedding. They were the most joyous of celebrations. They involved families and whole communities coming together. So it's fitting that this is used as a metaphor for what life in God's eternal kingdom would be like. And as the understanding of the afterlife began to expand, we begin to see most of Jesus' references in the Gospels to heaven refer not to paradise, but to the dwelling place of God and where God's will is done. You see, Jesus' interest, as Andy mentioned last week, is not focused on getting people to go to heaven. His focus is on how we might be part of heaven being experienced on earth. Instead of describing what heaven is like, he describes who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, to the poor in spirit, the persecuted, to those who can become like children. He taught in parables that those who helped the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, those who welcomed the stranger and visited the silk and imprisoned, those were the ones who are welcomed into the heavenly kingdom. And then at the Last Supper, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is about to happen, we hear this passage from the Gospel of John. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go... And I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. This is how Jesus describes heaven. It's an inclusive and inviting understanding of heaven. One that has room for everyone. One that's not focused on right belief or right actions. 
his understanding of heaven this way is clear when we read the story of the thieves who were crucified next to Jesus. One of them recognizes Jesus for who he is. This man, this thief on the cross, has not lived a righteous life of piety. He was not one of Jesus' followers. He may not have even been a believer. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't list the good works that he's done. He simply turns to Jesus and asks, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, Today you will be with me in paradise. What a hopeful gift of love from Jesus. Amid their pain and their suffering, Jesus offers room and space and paradise to one who is suffering with him. It's meant to offer the thief peace and invitation, and it doesn't resolve his current predicament. And while we don't have a lot of specifics about what happens in the afterlife, and the specifics in the Bible can be stark, in stark contrast to one another, what the scriptures teach us is that death is not the end, and that somehow, some way, we are with God. And that's a good thing. Ultimately, it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us the greatest hope and the reassurance of the reality of heaven. Now, this brings up its own set of doubts and questions, but that's okay too. Adam Hamilton points out that having doubts about the resurrection of Jesus puts you in good company. None of the disciples, Jesus' closest friends and companions for three years, none of them believed at first either. Some of them doubted, including Thomas, until they saw Jesus with their own eyes. Doubt was a part of the Christian experience even then. And the disciples went from hiding in fear and doubt to proclaiming the resurrection of Christ with a conviction that could not be shaken even by their own deaths. Their teachings and actions point to their belief, their conviction in the reality of the resurrection. If the ones who walked alongside Jesus before his death and after his resurrection struggled to believe, then it makes sense that we, some 2,000 years later, would struggle too. From the Christian perspective, the hope of heaven that Lisa Miller says defies logic, that hope is centered on the empty tomb. It's important because it demonstrates who Jesus was, the Savior of the world in the very incarnation of God. The hope of the empty tomb demonstrates that Jesus can defeat evil and hate and sin and even death. Theologian Frederick Buechner says that the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Such a great quote. I'm going to give you the full one. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even, yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. Christ's resurrection and the Bible's words about the afterlife serve as the foundation for a belief in heaven. 
The Christian faith centers on the hope of an empty tomb. The hope of heaven is that death is swallowed up in victory, that no matter the specifics of our passing being accident or illness or tragedy or age. I have one last thought on heaven. Last week, Andy said he was changing the title of my sermon from Is Heaven Real to Do All Christians Go to Heaven? And I said earlier that Jesus focused not on how to get into heaven, but rather how to make God's kingdom part of the here and now. Scripture generally seems less interested in how we can go to heaven than how heaven comes to us and can change our life and the lives around us. The Bible consistently speaks of heaven as God's kingdom, distinct from the creative world that we live in, but it also suggests that God's kingdom is drawing near to this one. And as Christians, we believe that heaven came to earth through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so while 72% of Americans believe in heaven and agree that heaven is eternal, we are called to build God's kingdom now, today. In this very moment and in the moments to come, we don't have to wait until our afterlife begins to start spending eternity with God. Jesus brings us into the God's kingdom even as we continue to live in this one. The radical, the transformational hope that comes from the empty tomb is that we can make heaven on earth. It isn't exclusively about looking forward to being raised as spiritual bodies or reunions with loved ones who have died before, no matter how joyful and wonderful those reunions will be. It also isn't about finally returning to our prime or getting to spend eternity in a beautiful oasis, or finally understanding the great mysteries of life, or any of the other grand experiences that we envision in heaven. Instead, our hope is about looking forward to the time when we pray, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus' prayer implies that heaven is present wherever and whenever God's will is faithfully done. We don't need to wait until after death to experience heaven. We have abundant opportunities to show heaven to others right now. The question isn't, do all Christians get to go to heaven? The question is, how do all Christians show heaven here and now? Rob Bell answers that question this way. When you forgive somebody, when you are generous, when you withhold judgment, when you love and when you stand up to injustice, you are in that moment bringing heaven to earth. So the answer to the question, is heaven real, is yes. Every time we love God and we love others, when we care for the least of these, when we choose the way of compassion, the way of forgiveness, the way of generosity, we are making heaven real for one another. Heaven is about our expressions of being here for good, not waiting for some other there to come later. I go back to Lisa Miller's quote, and while we may not have all the perfectly logical answers about the nature and the location of heaven, what we do have is hope. And hope is something that we can put all our belief in and live our lives by. Will you join me in prayer?